the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is built over the site of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's built over the site of Golgotha and over the site of the empty tomb. When Jesus was crucified and buried, it occurred outside the then walls of Jerusalem. Today, that church is located within the old city walls because those walls expanded over time. But historically, we know that the site where Jesus was crucified, where He died, and where His body was buried is located within the geographical confines of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's an ancient church. It was built 1,700 years ago at the direction of the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Okay, so it's a very ancient church. It's been there for almost the entire history of Christianity, and certainly from the mid-300s A.D. It's an ancient church. It's an ancient, ancient site. I've been into that church twice on pilgrimages to Jerusalem. It's filled with artwork. It's filled with icons. It's filled with statues to saints. Lots of candles, lots of incense burning, lots of marble, lots of tapestries, lots of paintings of various kinds, lots of stonemasonry, lots of well-worn steps. As you climb the steps up to the top of Golgotha, you notice that these stone and marble steps are warped from centuries upon centuries of faithful climbing the steps to the top of the hill inside the building. And then you go from that site around the corner and into the main rotunda. There's a hole in the very top where light shines through, kind of like over in our dome. Light shines through down into this large rotunda. And at the center of it is an even more ancient looking structure. It looks kind of shabby. It looks extremely disappointing. You think it would be all glorious, and you look at it, and you say, my gosh, they need to get a contractor to do some major work. Where's the trustees? The thing is falling apart. They've got wrought metal iron bars holding up the sides of the structure. It's made of stone that's crumbling, marble that's falling off the structure. Back in the 1700s, the Orthodox had made this cupola, this kind of a steeple that they put on one end of it. But much of this structure dates back centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And the only reason why it's still standing is because it's been protected away from most of the weather by the dome. But it's been impacted by earthquakes and war because the church has been hit by bombs in previous wars. It's a real mess. And yet it is the fulcrum, the focal point, the very center of the faith of millions of people, and especially of Orthodox and Catholic Christians across over a thousand years in the life of the church. Because inside this structure is the cave, is the sepulcher, is the tomb carved out of living rock, is the tomb carved out of rock by Joseph of Arimathea that was then given to Jesus for him to be buried in. You see, in that time and place, when you were placed in a grave, you weren't placed in a grave to stay there. 
You were placed in a grave for your body to desiccate, to rot away, to nothing but bones. And then those bones would be taken and cleaned and placed into a small box called an ossuary and then placed in a family chapel with your name on it. And then that tomb would then be reused by somebody else when they die. Well, if you're very wealthy, you don't want to have your body rotting in some tomb that somebody else has used. And so someone like Joseph of Arimathea could afford to have a brand new tomb chiseled out of the face of a rock wall. That's exactly what he did. And this cemetery, if you will, was located just around the corner from Golgotha, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. He had just had it carved out for his own use when Jesus had died. And so he went and he asked for permission and he got the body of Jesus and he took him down from the cross and then he and his servants took Jesus' body and prepared it and placed it in this tomb and sealed it up so that the body could apparently rot. Only we know the rest of the story. We know from the four Gospels that Jesus wasn't there, that the tomb was empty, that he was raised from the dead. And so this is the tomb, this is the cave, this is the man-made tomb or sepulcher that was discovered by the mother of Constantine in the 4th century A.D., in the 300s, when she went to Jerusalem to visit the places of her own faith, because she was a Christian long before her son ever became one. She was a Christian for a very long time, and she wanted to go and see the sights where Jesus had lived and see where Jesus had died. And at that time, they knew. And they were building this temple to Jupiter on the site, and so she ordered it torn down. And then they tore it down, they discovered Golgotha, and they discovered the empty tomb. The only tomb in a group of tombs that didn't have a body in it, rotting away. And she proclaimed it the tomb of Christ, and had the rest of the tombs on either side of that wall of tombs chiseled away and removed, leaving just this one tomb sticking above ground. And they constructed that thing around the upcrop up, up of rock that was left when they removed the rest of the wall. The tomb was left and they built this structure around it to protect it. And then they built the even bigger structure, the church, around that to protect it. For almost 2,000 years, that stood in Jerusalem. The focus of faith, the focus of many, many pilgrimages. And this has been built and rebuilt and repaired many times. And you go into the thing. You go in, you first of all, you have to wait in a line that lasts nearly forever. You think Jesus is going to return before you get inside. And you finally get in, you come into this little chapel called the Chapel of the Angels. And then you go into this even smaller passage and you have to really bend down. Jay would have trouble getting in. Bend down really far. And you get inside and you come out and you're inside a little chamber that's about three times the size of a casket. Looks like that. 
just a little bit of room where you can stand facing this shelf like a low-level bed made of marble, two large marble slabs that are incredibly worn by fingers and by lips kissing it and hands touching it and praying over it and foreheads being rested against it in prayer. You kneel facing it and when you kneel facing it, you're facing the place or the rock underneath that marble where Jesus lay. You see, if you remove all that marble, you move all that stone, you move all that tiles, move all that uh, masonry on the sides, you move the tapestries and the icons and the candles and all that other stuff, you'll come to a rough-hewn, man-made cave. Bare rock walls. You can still see the chisel spots where Joseph of Arimathea's servants have cut away the rock to make this small chamber and to make the bed, the rock pallet there. And now it's been covered with marble and stone and icons and candles and tapestries to prepare it, to, to, to safeguard it against it being worn away by thousands upon thousands upon thousands over over a thousand years worth of pilgrims coming to the same itty-bitty little room to kneel and to pray. To kneel and to pray at what the prayer believes to be the very site that Jesus was raised from the dead. The very site where they laid him. And I joined the group with three other little ladies kneeling there. I knelt down too. I thought my knees were going to shatter on me. It hurt so much. And as tears rolled down my cheeks, I placed my forehead against that marble. And I prayed. I prayed for in 2006, I prayed for my dad, and I prayed for the church I was pastoring at that time, and I, I did the same thing again in 2010. My dad had already passed on, but, but I was praying for the people of God that I loved that were with me on this tour and for the church that I was serving at that time with tears streaming down my cheeks as I knelt there in prayer. And as I knelt there in prayer, I felt something that I felt only a few other places and a few other times in my life. Once was at the, the, the western wall, the wailing wall there in Jerusalem, just a little bit below where the, the temple had been located. And here's another place. I felt the all-encompassing, real presence of God, the electrifying, real presence of God, the powerful, palpable, real presence of God the amazing grace and power of the real presence of Jesus. I felt him right there as if I were to open my eyes, I'd see him lying in front of me, glowing as the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. I could feel my heart racing. I could feel the lump in my throat. I could feel that shiver go down my back. And I could feel the hairs raising in excitement, I was there. 
in the presence of God. It was amazing. I didn't want to leave, but of course, they only let you stay there for a minute or two at most before you've got to squeeze out to let in more faithful. From there, we took some more tours around Jerusalem, and it ended at the second possible tomb site that's usually identified as the tomb of Jesus, called Gordon's Tomb or the Garden Tomb. Now, this is located in a garden outside the current city walls. It's a beautiful garden, well-maintained, lovely in design, clearly loved and cared for by the people who take care of it. And the tomb itself, is you can see it's been repaired. You can see the repair work that's been done on it. Somebody made the door a whole lot bigger at one time, and they sealed it back up to make it square like a, like a door ought to be. has a little window in it. has a light inside there. I'm sure the electrical work is not original to the structure, friend. It's beautiful. It's quiet. It's idyllic. It's what Protestants think the tomb ought to look like. What you see in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre with all of the marble and the stone and the pillars and the artwork, it's impressive, but it's not what we think the tomb ought to look like. Most of us look at this and say, ugh, that doesn't look like the tomb that Jesus laid in. Well, no, but it's been visited for 1,700 years that's a long time, friends. 17 centuries of faithful have visited it. If they hadn't covered up with marble and stone, it wouldn't be there at all. But they've made a shrine out of everything, every nook and cranny. I mean, there would be an altar to the Holy Spirit in the men's room if they had one at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There really would be. But Gordon's tomb... It's what we think it ought to look like. That's when we go into it, it looks right, it feels right. You go inside, you don't see marble, you don't see icons, you don't see statues, you don't see candles, you don't see tapestries. You see that. Rough-hewn rock. You see that. What a lot of people think the tomb must have looked like. And when I walked into there, I remember standing in there in 06, looking around, having just been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, standing around, looking at it, and I felt that same feeling, like I was standing in the very midst of God. And I knew I had no business standing, so I went to my knees right there and prayed. And I felt that exact same feeling I felt in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I felt that same feeling I felt in the middle of the tomb there, in the middle of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I felt the same feeling here in the garden tomb that I felt in that other tomb. Well, how is that possible, you may ask? It has to be either one tomb or the other tomb or neither tomb, right? You can't have both tombs be the right tomb, can it? Say no. Thank you. I wanted to ask if I was boring you. I wasn't entirely sure of that. Thank you. Now, 
It's either got to be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre tomb, it's got to be Gordon's tomb, or it could be neither tomb. It could be another tomb that was never discovered. And that's the point. The tomb was empty. There was no body in it. He had risen. It was my faith in the risen Lord. It was my faith in the risen presence of Jesus, entirely independent of tombs. It was my faith in the immediate experience of knowing the love of God in my life. It was my faith in the crucified and risen Lord that when I kneeled in those special places of faith and prayer, God touched me. The Holy Spirit of God touched me. And I knew I was in the immediate real presence of Jesus. I have felt that in many other places. In prayer, right here. Right here at the table of the Lord. I have felt that immediate real presence and I've known that God was with me. That experience has informed my understanding of the faith because I've been asked by skeptics, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Why do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You're an intellectual, you've got a doctorate, you've studied other languages, you've studied the sciences, you love astronomy, all that other stuff you've studied, you know mathematics. Why in the world do you find faith in the resurrection reasonable? The answer to that will take a very long time, so I'm going to just touch on it today. Why do I believe in the resurrection? And I'm going to start with a basic principle of Methodist theology called the quadrilateral. Methodists can turn to multiple sources of authority for our faith, but we always begin with Scripture, the Holy Word of God the revelation of God to us. We begin with the Word of God, but we don't have just the Word of God because we got 2,000 years of Christians before us who have interpreted the Word of God. And that's the tradition of the church, the tradition of its interpretation, its understanding and application. And the traditions of the church help us to understand the Scriptures of the church. So Methodists have Scripture as primary and tradition as supplemental and interpretive, because the Scriptures don't speak to everything. On some things, they are silent. And when they're silent, tradition is a source of authority for us. But more importantly, tradition is interpretive. Why reinvent the wheel? Christians have been interpreting the Scriptures for thousands of years. Before us, it was the Jews interpreting Scripture. We inherited their interpretive structures, and we practice them still to this day within the Christian church. So why reinvent the wheel of interpretation when we can look to see what Christians have believed for centuries? Scripture, tradition. Then there's experience. Experience informs us. Experience is what we live. It's how we live. It's what we encounter in life. So we interpret the Scriptures through the traditions of the church, and through our own experience of God, and through reason, our ability to think, analyze, consider, and articulate. 
Scripture is the foundation of our faith. We have within it the revelation of God. We have within it the Word of God. Tradition helps us to interpret it, as does experience, as does reason. We call it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. By the way, Wesley didn't invent it. He inherited it from Christians before him. He never actually called it the quadrilateral. That's something that Dr. Outler called it over at SMU several decades back. But it basically relates Wesley's approach to Scripture. Scripture primary, tradition secondary and interpretive, experience interpretive of tradition and Scripture, and reason is the way in which we go about studying it all. Okay? With that in mind, with that system of thought in mind, I want to take a look at why do I believe in the resurrection? Why do I believe in the resurrection? And we start with Scripture and the empty tomb stories. We start with Scripture and the account of the empty tomb. You see, there are scholars today who say that the empty tomb stories were invented. Paul seems to show no indication of knowing anything about the empty tomb. He doesn't talk about an empty tomb in any of his letters to anybody in Rome or Galatia or Corinth or Ephesus. He doesn't talk about an empty tomb anywhere. He talks about a risen Lord. He talks about encountering Jesus personally, but he doesn't talk about an empty tomb. And so some scholars of the New Testament have said that the empty tomb stories came along after Paul. Sometime in the 60s, prior to the writing of the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Sometime in the 60s, the empty tomb stories were invented, they say. There's only one problem with that theory. Well, there are several problems with that theory, but I'm going to give you the historical problem with the theory. Because it doesn't pass the muster of what's called Occam's razor, the principle that the simplest answer is usually the right one. What's the problem with the claim that they made it up, that they made up the stories of the empty tomb? Well, the problem is, is that the one person who is the same in every story, in Mark, in Matthew, in Luke, and John, the same person to discover the empty tomb in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, the same person to be the first evangelist of the resurrection of Jesus in Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, the same person to be the first to go to the disciples and say, He is risen, is a woman. At a time and place where women were property and were not to be listened to as an authority for anything, would they make up a story about the discovery of an empty tomb and make it up with a woman as the hero? No. And not only any just woman, but it's Mary Magdalene who had been filled with demons. Would they make it up? That way, if they were making it up, they would have had Peter go and discover the tomb. They would have had John discover the tomb. They would have had Thomas the Doubter discover the tomb. Not Mary Magdalene, not a woman. And in fact, later writers, Matthew, Luke, and John, tried to get the men into the story. Mark just says the women went and they discovered the tomb, they were afraid, and they went away. Matthew, Luke, and John says Peter and 
John go running to take a look at the tomb. But the earliest part of the story still has, the initial discovery still has, the Easter sunrise discovery still has, Mary Magdalene is the common person in all three, four accounts. Mary Magdalene as the discoverer of the tomb. And if they were making it up, they wouldn't have used her. So I'm sorry, in terms of matter of historiography, they didn't make it up. They certainly didn't make it up with that character involved. This is a story that is historical. The discovery of the empty tomb cannot be simply wished away because Paul doesn't talk about it in the 50s. It's a story that begs the question, therefore. The empty tomb. If Jesus rose from the dead, there would be no body in a tomb, right? Okay, good, thank you. There'd be no body in a tomb. If he didn't rise from the dead... The best way to disprove the resurrection is what? Haul out the body. In fact, we have indications from Matthew's gospel that it was tried and they discovered that the body was gone. And they said the disciples stole the body. <gasps> That's what's indicated in Matthew. They tried to create that account, that story. The disciples stole the body. So obviously they looked to try to find a body to disprove the resurrection early on. And there's nobody there, no physical body, no remains that you could trot out to prove the resurrection didn't occur. So, the first reason I believe in the resurrection of Jesus is the physical evidence from Scripture. That one, the story isn't made up because Mary Magdalene's the hero of the story. And two, the story indicates that the tomb was empty and the best proof either for or against the resurrection, is the question of the body. And it's gone. Okay, that's the first reason I believe it, and it's the one that's rooted in Scripture. What's the second reason? The changed lives of the disciples. This one's rooted in Scripture and tradition. The changed life of the disciples. Let's start with Peter. Peter is a big, loud-mouthed, arrogant blowhard he's always putting his left foot in his mouth he's always going and saying things that he ought not to be saying he brags about how he will defend Jesus to the very end and Jesus tells him you're gonna deny me three times before the cock crows Peter oh I won't do it in the garden he pulls out that sword chops off Malchus's ear and ends up running away in fear, follows afar off, and when he's questioned, you must be one of his disciples, you sound just like a Galilean. He says, I am not, I do not know the man, I do not know the man. Three times, and bango, the cock crowed. And he was terrified, and he ran away, broken, crushed. A fearful man, loudmouthed, arrogant, and he couldn't follow through. What happened to him? Well, the resurrection of Jesus so touched and changed his life that while sometimes he still had a habit of putting foot and mouth like happened at Antioch when he went and had a meal with Paul and some Gentile Christians and got caught eating unkosher food and tried to get away from the table too fast, 
when the Jews came along and found him eating unkosher food. Apart from that kind of a story, take a look at him and his character and his nature and you discover that he was totally changed. He went from being afraid to having faith. He went from being self-centered to Christ-centered. He changed completely to the point that he died crucified upside down in Rome. The man who ran away and denied Jesus because he was afraid ended up dying for Jesus despite fear with faith on his lips. The other disciples can be used as examples here as well. Mark was dragged to death in Alexandria. Mark was dragged to death in Alexandria, and that sounds interesting and kind of easy to handle until you realize what that meant. That meant that they take a rope and they tie his front end to one horse and another rope and tie his back end to another horse and have the horses run in opposite directions. And all he had to do to get out of that was to say, we made up the story. We made it up. We made it up. Man, he wouldn't die. But he kept the faith, and he died for it. Andrew, he died crucified in Armenia. He was way off in the middle of nowhere. He could have recounted his faith, and no one would have known about it, right? Well, I'm sorry. Had he recounted his faith, had Thomas recounted his faith, had Mark recounted his faith, had Peter recounted his faith, had they said, we didn't do it, we made it up, they could have gotten out with their skins alive, but we would have heard about it. Changed lives. Thomas took the gospel to India. You know how he died? Professing Jesus Christ, he died being filleted alive. Ooh, make you eat. It makes you go into a steakhouse somewhat more nauseating if you think about it, right? Ugh. Each of the disciples, their lives were totally changed. They went from fear to faith, and each one of them died, dispersed, except for John, dispersed throughout the empire. They could have recanted and survived, and thinking no one would find out about it, but they didn't. And they died separate from each other, where peer pressure wouldn't keep them together. They usually died alone, but no one went back on their faith. In the face of death, this fearful group of disciples who didn't understand Jesus and ran away in the garden or denied him following far off, every one of them except John, died alone, horrendous deaths, having been changed from fear to faith and refusing to deny their Lord. The tradition of the church tells us, and the scripture tells us, that these disciples were changed people because of the resurrection, because of knowing the risen Christ. What's the third reason? The effect on the history of the world. This is tradition and experience, friends. What happened? Jesus was killed by the Roman authorities. Jesus was killed by the Roman Empire. 
the greatest military and governmental power of the time. It encompassed the entire Mediterranean Sea Basin, both North Africa and Southern Europe. It went all the way to England and parts of Germany in the north. And its influence was felt all the way into modern-day Iran and southward into Ethiopia. The Roman Empire was a very powerful socio-economic system. And its religious system was expansive with many different religions surviving next to each other. Christianity was being persecuted during its first three centuries. If you were a Christian, you get thrown to the lions, you get set afire to light the chariot races in Rome. Martyrdom was a real factor to be considered for those who joined the church in the first couple of three centuries of its history. And then that changed. The mother of an emperor, Constantine, as he unites the empire, claiming the support of Jesus. There's lots of political stuff going on there, lots of political and military intrigue going on there, but the influence of his mother cannot be denied. When he starts the unification of the empire going from the west to the east, the empire is entirely pagan. Christianity is an underground, persecuted religion. By the time Constantine dies, Christianity is the religion of the empire. It went from being persecuted to being tolerated to being proclaimed the official imperial religion. Now, they tried to go back a couple of times to the other pagan religions, but by that time, the church had been established, friends. In other words, the empire that killed Jesus, Jesus in his resurrected life transformed, changed, and is still changing the world today. In Africa, in Asia, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is changing millions of lives. And here today in the United States, where we live in a society that used to be Christian and now is no longer Christian. We have the opportunity to live the life of a Christian, to let others see what a Christian is by how we live in faith. The history of a changed world supports the resurrection. What's the final reason? The effect on you and me. This is experience and reason, friends. This one's experience and reason. Because of the empty tomb, because we can have faith that Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, because of the experience of the disciples and the apostles and how they faced death without recounting their faith, because of how the whole world was changed by the resurrected Christ and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because of how we have experienced the life-transforming grace of God in our lives, we can know and believe, exercise faith in the resurrection of Jesus. My friends, it's not about the bunny. It's not. The colored 
as, as Bugs Bunny call it, the, the, the technicolor hen fruit, the Easter eggs. It's not about Easter eggs. It's not about bunnies. It's about the empty tomb. It's about the cross, now empty. It's about the life of believers, now filled with the joy of the grace of God. That's what Resurrection Day is about. That's what every day is to be about. Proclaiming the good news of the real presence of Jesus in our midst. May this Easter, may this Resurrection Sunday, and every Sunday and every day of every week that you live, be blessed with the powerful, life-transforming, real presence of Jesus. And may you know and share the risen Lord with all you meet. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You have been listening to a sermon by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of Northgate United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2014 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other sermons by Dr. Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at Northgate United Methodist Church, 3700 West Northgate Drive, Irving, Texas, 75062. This program was produced by Dr. Gregory Neal.